Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus, and it's the 15th chapter, beginning at verse 12. This is a, a part of the song of Miriam. This is uh, Moses' sister, and it takes place as uh, she's witnessing the events of the Exodus. The, the people of Israel are, are finally uh, realizing their generations-long dream of freedom from oppression, and they're there on the shore of the Red Sea, and she is giving praise to God for what it is that she is witnessing uh, taking place right before her. I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. The New Testament reading that is prescribed for today, or a portion of it, from uh, the New Testament is in Paul's letter to the Romans, the sixth chapter, beginning at verse 12. He has been making a, distinct, a distinction between uh, the law that formerly reigned and which the people of God um, were, in his words, slaves to, and the new law which Christ is bringing in the new covenant. So I would invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Therefore, Paul writes, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, having once been slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. 
For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what advantage did you get then from the things of which you now are ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. The advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Freedom. Freedom. For the Hebrews, this was a dream that was alternately realized and unrealized throughout their history. They had gone from periods of self-determination to periods of foreign oppression, occupation, and exile. We heard in this morning's Old Testament reading a, a transition period when they were going from having been enslaved in Egypt to being free as wanderers in the desert on their way to inherit the promised land. In the years of Jesus' earthly ministry, the Israelites were residents there in that land, but it was at the time a Roman-controlled province under the guard of the legionnaires. In the years of the Apostle Paul's ministry in, with, and to the early Christian communities in the Mediterranean region, the situation on the ground had not changed, but the natives there were, as they say, getting even more restless. Within a handful of years of Paul's martyrdom, another Jewish rebellion was to begin, and it was to lead to a disproportionate military response from Rome, who was in no mood to grant the Hebrews their freedom. The descendants of Abraham yet yearned to be free. And here Paul is warning them, in effect, to be careful. To be careful of that which they are wishing for. When Moses brought them the gift of the law, which he received from God's hand at Sinai, it marked then a new era between the covenant God and his covenant people. The instructions that he gave to them at that time and place. They were designed to be a guide for ordering the lives of the people, uh, an ordering that would set them apart. It would be a distinguishing mark for them among all the nations of all the peoples on the earth. In a similar fashion, with the coming of the new covenant in and through Jesus, God was giving his people an alternative way of living by ordering their lives differently than all the rest of the world. This was freedom in Christ, and it was to them a new and unfamiliar concept. After all, with freedom comes great responsibility. Freedom in Christ was not readily apparent. It, it wasn't like the freedom that Miriam was singing about there on the shore of the Red Sea. Uh, unlike the freedom God had won 
for the Hebrew captives as he brought them out of their slavery in Egypt, the Christians didn't wake up that Easter morning to find themselves in a new land. They, they couldn't stand on the shore of a new place looking out upon a sea of vanquished enemies. Truth is, things looked pretty much the same, uh, albeit with the exception of an empty tomb. For though God had done great things for them in the vindication and the resurrection of his son, those victories were not as readily apparent to our human senses. The early evangelists, including the disciples and the Apostle Paul, spent a great deal of time and a great deal of energy explaining the meaning of the things brought about in the New Covenant that were not readily apparent. With the two tablets that were given to Moses, there was this tangible and lasting record in stone of what God wanted for and of his people. These words were carved into the consciousness of successive generation of Hebrews by the telling and the retelling and the retelling some more of the law and its miraculous origin. What Jesus brought to earth was both more expansive and more enigmatic, as it was a bit more abstract than what had been given to Moses. Jesus left us with a, a life of teaching and preaching and acts of service. He left us with a holy meal and, of course, with that empty tomb. But just as their ancestors in the wilderness had been freed from the yoke of Pharaoh and his laws and decrees, this didn't mean that law had been abolished and the people were now free to do whatever they pleased. For it wasn't long thereafter that Moses was given law for the people who were now free to follow. It's not the ordinances of the Egyptians. It's a new set that the people of God are now given to follow. So it was that those who were freed by Jesus from following the laws of the Pharisees, those who had conflated and misinterpreted the intent of the Mosaic laws, God's people were now free, once again, free to follow the word of God, the word that had become incarnate and who was and who is the way and the truth and the life. Again, this does not mean that a people who have been freed from one human social contract to start writing and following their own, they are not free to make up their own rules. What it means, rather, is that they have been freed to follow the will of God as expressed in his ordinance for them in, through, and by Jesus. He's the one who lived these ordinances first for us, illustrating them perfectly as the eyewitnesses recorded for us in the Gospels. And now, as Paul is writing a generation or two later on, the people of God needed a, a reminder, it seems, that they are indeed still slaves. What has happened in the salvific and liberating work of Jesus is just as he announced there in his hometown 
synagogue as he read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But I don't think he intended us to hear was that Jesus was disbanding God. Indeed, he says that he has come not to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill the law. In that statement is implicit, I believe, the fact that there remains a divine code to guide and to, st to distinguish the people of God from the nations. Instead of now being servants in the house of Pharaoh or slaves to sin and death, God's people are now servants of a new master, the Lord of life. Again, they, we, are not free to be our own masters. That is a path that has led many astray and will lead many more to destruction. This echoes last week's gospel reading from the 10th chapter of Matthew. As Jesus taught, a disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. No, we are not, therefore, to set ourselves up over ourselves to usurp the seat of the sovereign, but to remember that our place is as servants. Servants to the most benevolent master of all time. The most benevolent master who created all time and all space and all things that exist therein and thereout. As faithful servants, then, we are called to certain things. Things which Jesus was pretty plain spoken about throughout his years of earthly ministry. And his teachings and his healings, his acts of compassion and service to the other, demonstrated that though the law of Moses was now declared to be unnecessary, the law of grace was in effect. And under that law, sinning was, alas, still impermissible. As much as we would like it to be otherwise, Paul is explaining to his brothers and sisters in Rome, you are not free to do whatever is pleasing in your sight with the expectation that you will get a pass for your behavior from God on account of the powerful grace that has been imputed by Jesus. No, there remains an expectation of accountability on the part of Jesus' followers. Christianity tells people to repent, and it promises them forgiveness. Yes, it also calls those who have received to freely give, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for their own missionary travels throughout the land of the Israelites. He tells them what to do. He says, as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom has come near. The kingdom of heaven. Heal the sick, he says. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. But Jesus doesn't just tell them what. For he immediately tells them the how and the why 
of and for the ministry work that they are being charged with. Freely you have received, freely give. And that, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is, I think, the most straightforward and understandable explanation of the law of grace which Jesus ever taught. With that in mind, I find it a bit easier to unpack what Paul is reminding that Roman church of, that though they should delight in the freedom which is theirs in Christ at the same time, they have responsibility to conduct themselves in the manner of his servants. A couple hundred years after Paul, the great African theologian and Bishop Augustine reminded the faithful with these words. He said, the good man, though he is a slave, is free. But the bad man, even if he reigns, is a slave. And not of one man, but what is far worse, of as many masters as he has vices. Far better, then, to be in service to the Lord of life than to the Lord of sin, whose wages are death. That's how one may sum up Paul's argument here in Romans 6, and just as then, so too now. There's a choice that is laid before us, those who have been endowed with free will. Will we seek our own comfort first? Will we use these gifts for self-gratification? Will we advance our own agenda, or will we, the redeemed of the Lord, act as if we've been redeemed? Will the change that Jesus has wrought in our lives be reflected in the way that we live them? That remains the challenge to the church today. Can the changes that Jesus lived and died and rose to bring us be reflected in those who, to this day, admit to believing on that holy name? Can we, as his disciples, model the law of grace for and in a world that is full of lawlessness? Can a gospel of sacrificial love overcome the deep-seated and sinful desires to satisfy the self? In his ministry, it looked and sounded as if Jesus thought that was possible. In his writings and witness, it looked and sounded as if Paul thought that was possible through Christ. Dare we believe it? Dare we live it? The path of extending to others, the liberating grace which we have received ourselves, is at once both a tremendous gift and an awesome obligation to believers. And for that, we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.